Nice to be back in church again. Um, 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, the Lord's judgment on Ahaziah. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of fifty men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. And then moving into the New Testament, to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. John the Baptist prepares the way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send you my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism and testing of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Jesus announces the good news. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, good morning, everyone. Slowly, we're getting bigger. It's very exciting to see particularly the young families back in church, and if I can just say a very warm welcome back. I know it's been a long and difficult journey uh, with COVID and particularly with the building, and to have the building open for kids' ministry is fantastic. And so welcome back. We pray and just encourage other people to keep coming each week and grow what can happen here. Uh, and we are praying that 
COVID will be kept unchecked and we can increase our numbers, uh, the government permitting in coming weeks. But let me pray as we come to this second week in Mark's Gospel. Father, we do thank you for just being able to be together in these strange days. And Father, I thank you for the building program almost being finished, that kids can be there inside, leaders involved. And Lord, we pray it's a wonderful day for them as they meet back. And Lord, for us, as we look at your word, I pray that you would speak to us and transform us as we hear this very powerful message of repentance and faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, if you weren't here last week, we're in the second week of Mark's gospel. And we've begun a series uh, which is called The Story That Changes the World, Changes the World, uh, Changes Everything. And I did say last week, and I'll say it again, to have a title like that, The Story That Changes Everything, is a fairly audacious title. Because what kind of story can change everything? And you just think about that for a moment. What kind of story can actually change everything? Well, it obviously needs to have a certain power that impacts people personally and transforms them and gives them a new sense of capacity and ability to change and to think differently about the world we're in. And what we're saying in this series is that the gospel actually has that kind of power. And not just to talk about it, I want to give you a very concrete example of this, which is from the early church. And you don't have to know much about the early centuries of the church to know that within three, four centuries, the Christian church became really the dominant force in terms of religion and its influence in the Roman Greco world. And there's a sociologist whose name is Rodney Stark. And when Rodney wrote his fairly significant book, uh, which is called The Rise of Christianity, Rodney wasn't a believer. Now, I think he calls himself an independent Christian these days. He has, uh, identifies as Christian. And he wrote this book, which I've got on the screen behind me. And I love the subtitle. It tells you that it's not a common, popular book how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries. Um, not your nighttime, late reading, best thriller. It's a significant work though. And what he does is he looks from a sociological angle at the way the Christian church impacted the Greco-Roman world. And he's got all sorts of material in there. And I want to give you just one particular concrete example uh, from the life of Julian the Emperor. Now, Julian came after the very famous Emperor Constantine, who's famous because he's the one whose edict made Christianity legal. He didn't actually make it the religion of the empire, but he made it legal and not illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire of the time. Julian followed him. He famously became called Julian the Apostate. Though baptised as a Christian when young, he basically turned his back on it when he was 20 and followed the pagan gods of Rome. And as emperor, he launched a campaign to institute pagan charities in an effort to match the Christians of the day. And Rodney Stark notes that Julian complained in a letter to a high priest who was in Galatia in 362 AD that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of Christians for recent Christian crows uh, had caused by them um, because the Christians were basically outdoing the Romans in terms of their good works in the empire. And he says their moral character, even if it's pretended, and I do love the kind of, you know, he's not happy about this, moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards stranger and care for the graves of the dead. You can see he's just, he can't make sense of it. But they're outdoing us, is what he's saying. And he wrote in this letter to this priest these words, 
I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests and the impious, uh, which is us, and the impious Galileans, which is the Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. These impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but shock horror, ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And he's embarrassed because basically the Christians did what Christians do. They care for people. And it got such an embarrassment for him as the emperor that he wanted to institute a state charity program to try and match them. And it's just one very particular example of how the early church changed the culture as they began this movement of love and compassion in a needy world. And one writer reflecting on this particular um, sociological reality, Christian writer, said basically they introduced the whole topic of philanthropy in the ancient world. And it's interesting because philanthropy, which simply means a love for mankind, was actually introduced by Christians. Now, you know this is a very common phrase in our Western culture, to be a philanthropist, you help people apart from yourself, typically those in need. And in the early Christian societies of both the Greek East and the Latin West, philanthropia, love for mankind, assumed an integrated and far-reaching meaning, its application directed to the humblest and the poorest. And philanthropia extended to the underprivileged as it proclaimed freedom, equality and brotherhood, transcending sex, race and national boundaries. Thus, it was not limited to equals, allies or relatives or citizens and civilised man, as was most the case in the Roman Empire. And this is a movement that began with the Christian church. And you have to ask why. Well, it's because of the gospel. Because it is the story that changes everything. And you just think of just one story of Jesus that is behind all of these stories I've been telling you about, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which literally got lived out in the life of the early church. And you see, this is the power of this story of the gospel as people encounter the living God in the person of Christ and as they repent and as they believe this good news for themselves, they are transformed and it changes everything. And we come to the second half of the introduction to Mark's Gospel today and we're looking at the section from chapter 1 verse 4 through to verse 15 and I'm kind of sneaking in the first part of Jesus' ministry. And if you've got your Bibles there, and as I said last week, please open them up, chapter 1, verse 4 to 15. If you haven't got, uh, we haven't able to have our Bibles here in the church because of COVID, they're not able to be in the seat, so please do, if you can bring them along, that'd be great. And we come to really this back end of this introduction. And last week we saw the first three verses, Mark introduced Mark's Gospel by saying this is a book, a story, that is the beginning of the good news about Jesus who is the Christ or the Messiah, he's also the Son of God. And he said this good news actually began with the Old Testament in terms of the prophecies that spoke of one to come. And it spoke actually of God who was going to come. Now in this section we're looking at today, uh, there's basically two key characters we're going to look at, John the Baptist and the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And they together have one key message which is that of repentance. We'll come to that. Let's have a look though at John the Baptist. Intriguing figure. Now he's known as John the Baptist because he went out and baptised people. Let's have a look at verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. And so we learn from these verses that, yes, he was a baptizer. And my reading of uh, the New Testament period is this was a new, if I can say, religious ritual that was introduced by John the Baptist. There were other washing rituals uh, that were, um, if I can say, parallel in his time, um, where people were doing washing in terms of signs of cleanliness. But there's something new about what John was doing with this baptism and this is how he became known. He was John, the one who baptised. Now, the significant thing is, and is where he baptised people. Now, if I can just make a little comment about the Old Testament um, and Mark's Gospel. The beauty of Mark's Gospel is this. You can read it as someone who is completely new to the Christian faith and know nothing and be transformed with it. And that was my story. I read Mark's Gospel, not knowing anything really about it, and I didn't know anything really about the Old Testament, apart from some of the key stories, David and Goliath, Moses and the Exodus. And you will meet God there in the person of his son. Well, let me just encourage you, the more you know your Old Testament, the more Mark's gospel will come off the page to you. And so much that we have in this introduction is giving us connections to what had already taken place with the people of God in Israel, both in the events of Israel and also in the prophecies that were given to Israel. And the River Jordan is a very significant place. It's at the southern part of Israel and it's where Israel first entered the Promised Land after their long trek for 40 years out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And John takes them back to, in a sense, where they began. And there's a great significance about this place. And you can almost say, see John saying there's a new beginning happening for Israel, the people of God. And we're going back to our roots. And we're being washed clean, our sins, the baptism symbolic of that. And his baptism, as it says there in verse 4, was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But I don't think his baptism ministry was his most significant ministry. He was known as the baptizer. What was most significant, I think, about John was his ministry as a prophet. And you could really describe John the Baptist as the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets, or probably a better way of saying it, the Old Covenant prophets. The prophets that existed before the time of Jesus. Now, just have a look at verse 6 and the description of him. He wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And I was thinking to myself, you know, if someone came and told me that there was a man up at North Head and he was wearing a camel hair jacket and he had a leather belt on and he was eating cicadas and honey and he's telling you that God is about to turn up, get ready, you know who I'd be calling? the Northern Beaches Mental Health Unit. And John has that kind of slightly crazy demeanour about it when you read of him. But it's very deliberate. He's identifying himself with a very key figure from the Old Testament. Now Sarah read a very significant chapter about that prophet. His name is Elijah. And I had that read because Elijah was one who was described as wearing a coat of hair, 
a leather belt. And another one wearing that exact same clothing has turned up. And you think with me about Elijah. And he was one of the significant prophets in the Old Testament. Not a writing prophet, like if I can say Isaiah or Ezekiel who wrote stuff down, but he was just a preaching prophet. And his ministry was to call the people back to God. And he was a prophet who preached judgment. And it's a very powerful chapter, 2 Kings chapter 1. We read half of it. The second half, the king, who's just been told via his attendant that Elijah has pronounced judgment on him and that death will come because of his injury, goes to take Elijah out and he sends three cohorts of 50 soldiers to deal with Elijah. And each time they come to Elijah, Elijah prays to God and calls out to God and they are struck down dead. And at the end of the chapter... Ahaziah is dead. And this is the prophet that Elijah models himself on. And if you remember back last week, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 2, spoke of Malachi's prophecy that said a messenger will come. Now, when you get to the next chapter in Malachi, still referring to that same event, he says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so John the Baptist is this, I would say, fearsome type character who is telling people God is about to turn up. And it's his message that was most significant. There's one greater than me coming. And he's announcing that God is about to turn up. And that's what Malachi says. The messenger will come, God will appear in his temple. And so the people flocked out to hear him. And he's right down in the south of the country. And it describes the whole Judean countryside and the city of Jerusalem, the people coming. He was a prophetic figure who announced that God was about to turn up. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Now, what's fascinating to notice, and we know this from John's Gospel, he didn't know who it was. He just knew someone greater than him was going to come, and the language that he uses here speaks of God coming because he says this one who comes who's going to be greater than me I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the sandal so you've got this sense of which he thinks it's a a person but yet he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit now if you knew your Old Testament prophecies as a good Jew you would know that Isaiah chapter 32 chapter 44 Ezekiel chapter 36 uh, Joel chapter 3 they all spoke of this coming of a day when God would pour his spirit upon his people and so the spirit of God would not just be there for the leaders who were anointed able to lead the people in victory it would be available for all men women boys and girls is what Joel said and so someone was going to come who would usher in this event and the hundreds possibly thousands came And they heeded the warning. And then we get to verse 9. And we meet Jesus of Nazareth. 
And it says in verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth. Now I just want to give you kind of an insight into Nazareth as a town. Um, it would be like saying, um, Barry came from Bogabri. Who knows where Bogabri is? I've got no idea. I just know it's one of those funny Australian names we have. It wouldn't be like saying he came from Dubbo. That would be like saying a Galilean up in the north. It's a name or a town not known in any part of the Old Testament, not known in any writing in the Talmud, which were the Jewish writings, not known or referred to ever by Josephus, the Jewish historian. It's a nothing town. And Mark says, this guy turns up from this nothing town, whose name is Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. It's just this little nothing town up in the north. And he was baptised by John in the Jordan. Now, the other thing to note is, uh, we know this from the other Gospels, it's John's nephew, sorry, his cousin. They had mothers who were sisters together. And John the Baptist's uh, parents involved in the priesthood, so most likely down in the south, his cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, from way up north. And John the Baptist doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah. And he baptises him. And I would have thought it would have been a fairly unique experience that John the Baptist looks and sees his cousin there and baptises him. But something happens at that baptism which is incredibly significant, which opened John the Baptist's eyes as to what was happening. Verse 10, just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Again, if you were a faithful Jew in the day, you would know that Isaiah prophesied, chapter 65, of the heavens being torn apart and God coming down. And the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And we know from John's Gospel that this was a, basically the word from God, this is how you will know who this greater one will be. And you can just imagine John the Baptist, he's looking face to face with his cuz. Like, you're the one. Now, no doubt Jesus would have stood out in his day. He was sinless. And there's something annoying about people who never do anything wrong, isn't there? They just never get in trouble. <laughs> and I don't know what Jesus' um, you know, camaraderie with those he grew up with would have been like. But there's this divine moment that takes place. And then in verse 11, a voice comes. You are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased. What Mark is doing is introducing us to the character that is going to dominate this gospel, Jesus. He's already told us that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. That's by way of introduction to the reader. Now we discover at the very beginning of his ministry whom God says he is, the Father. And it's profound. You have the Trinity here. The Father speaking, this is my Son, you are my Son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And there's a number of Old Testament quotes that the Father is speaking over his Son. Psalm 2, Isaiah 42, references to the King, the Son, the Beloved. And the Spirit descending upon him, not 
that he needed the Spirit, but it was just a sign that he would fulfill the role of Messiah, the anointed one. And so, baptised in water, anointed by the Holy Spirit. And what we're given an insight into here is this incredibly private moment that is in the introduction for the reader to see that Mark has told us one thing, God now tells us the same thing, this is the Messiah, this is my son, listen to him. And then the second thing that happens to Jesus is he's taken out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, it's interesting, Mark's description of this temptation that was for 40 days is very brief, it's only two verses. Now, if you go to Matthew's Gospel and Luke, which came later, they add a lot more detail in, but Mark is not interested in that. He just says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. The focus is not on the temptation itself in Mark's Gospel. It's worth noting that. Um, there is a mention of 40 days, and 40 is one of those biblical numbers that just seems to appear. Moses, 40 days. Elijah, 40 days. You've got Noah, 40 days. And here you've got Jesus, 40 days. What is mentioned twice, though, and whenever the gospel writers repeat words, there's a significance about it, and the word that's repeated twice is the wilderness. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and then he was in the wilderness 40 days. Think with me, who was in the wilderness for 40 years? Israel, wandering under the judgment of God till one whole generation died because of their unbelief. And what happens is, the Son of God turns up. And what he does is, he goes and identifies with the very people he's come for. He didn't need to get baptised, he was sinless. But he went and identified with those he came to be with and to save. And experienced what they did, a baptism for sins. And then he went symbolically, you would say, to the wilderness in preparation for his ministry. Now what's really interesting is when you read from verses 9 through to 13, this introductory statement, description about Jesus, the only human figure in the narrative is Jesus. The Holy Spirit is there falling upon him. The Father is there declaring his kingship and his identity as son. The Spirit is with him in the wilderness, but with him also and against him is Satan and the wild animals. And the wild animals, I think, speak of the disorder of creation, and that's typically how they're portrayed in the Old Testament who need to be tamed, and you've got angels attending him. And what Mark is doing is, is giving us the backdrop for the story of Jesus, because you're about to enter into this human journey of Jesus as he will journey for the next three years and demonstrate who he is to the world, but particularly at this point to Israel, that he actually is the Messiah and he is the Son of God and he will teach. But you cannot understand 
that story without understanding the cosmic backdrop, which is that there's a spiritual warfare that is taking place. And Jesus enters into that conflict. And what's fascinating in Mark's gospel, the very first thing he does is calls his disciples and then he begins his public ministry and what happens? He's confronted by a demon. Which happens numbers of times after that. At the centre of the gospel, the turning point. What happens? Peter works out, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, I am. And I'm going to go and get killed by the leaders and after three days will rise again and Peter's famously rebuked by Jesus who says to him get behind me Satan and you see that the identity of Jesus and his ministry at the cross is something that the devil will want to undo I think probably his most famous parable in Mark's gospel is the parable of the sower Mark chapter 4 And he describes four different responses to when the seed is sown. And he said some just gets picked up and snatched away, like birds picking its seed on a path. And then they ask him, what does this mean? And one of the descriptions is, well, it's like the word is sown and what snatches that word away? It's the devil. It's Satan. And this is the backdrop to understanding Mark's gospel that there is a cosmic battle for our souls and it's wrapped up with the understanding of who Jesus is. And the demons know who he is, but will we work it out? Or will we have that word snatched away by Satan himself? Well, that's Jesus. Now, interestingly, of these two fascinating characters, John the Baptist, Jesus of Nazareth, they've got one similar, same message, repentance. And the word repentance, which we use in the English language, is from a Greek word which has two words that simply mean change your thinking. It's where we get the word nous from, metanoia. And the call at a very literal level is to change the way you think. But it's far deeper than that. It's the whole sense of you turn around. And if you look at verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. What did he preach? He preached a baptism of repentance. Go and look at Luke or Matthew and his description of this. And you hear him in more detail talking about the need to repent genuinely. But that's what he announced. Turn back. Turn around. God is about to come. One greater than me will turn up who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus comes and he enters the public stage of his ministry. And I love that what happens. This is the first public thing Jesus does. He announces the gospel. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, the kingdom of God is a phrase which is very common in Christian circles, and I've heard it used for all kinds of ministry uh, activity. Uh, Some, I just think, how on earth do you think that's the kingdom of God at work? But anyway, I'll leave that one there. Um, If I can just give you a very simple description, the kingdom of God is about a king who's got a kingdom and he rules over that kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. And so you've got a ruler, which is the king, 
and that is God himself over his kingdom. And his kingdom is people. And God rules over his people in his place. And friends, when Jesus announced that the kingdom was near, he was really telling them, actually, the king has come and is about to inaugurate his new kingdom. And he was the king. And the simple message is this, repent, turn around and believe the gospel. Now, in our NIV translation, it's got believe the good news and for good reason, because it is good news. And I was thinking about this passage I'm preaching on today and, you thought, and I thought, what's the relevance in the 21st century of this camel coat wearing wild-eyed prophet from the first century in Israel who's down at the Jordan River baptising? And you think, what connection does he have with us today here in Manly in the 21st century? When so many people are just not interested. Because John announces that God is coming. And Jesus comes and says, the kingdom is near. And friends, the relevance of that message is still true today. The king has come to this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like he called Israel then, that message continues to go out to the world, to call people to repentance, to turn around and believe the good news, the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is the king, that he's the Messiah and he's the son of God. And what we'll see is, by the end of the story, is he's come not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, to die on a cross. And there's no doubt John the Baptist was this fearsome preacher who announced judgment. And those who came and he thought were faking it with their repentance, he says, look, you better get your life right because the wrath of God will come. And so he was a preacher of judgment. The fascinating thing is with Jesus, he does preach on hell more than anyone really, but it's reserved for those who are most hard to the gospel in the gospels. Because he knows that on the cross, the judgment of God will fall. But it will be on him. And he will bear that wrath for the sins of the world. So that we don't have to. And friends, that is the good news. And that's why the gospel is called good news. And he just says simply, turn around and believe this wonderful news and come to me. And to repent simply means we turn our lives around, we start following Jesus. We repent, it means we put him in charge. We humble ourselves before him, we repent. We change how we think and we let God's word direct us. We change our thinking, we repent, and we say, you are now in charge. And we believe the gospel, the wonderful news that there's a God who loves us and who's come for us. There's a God who sent his son to die for us and forgives us our sins. There's a God who sent his son to conquer death itself and he's risen from the grave. And when he rose from the grave, it wasn't just for him, it was for us. And he will take us to be with him for eternity. It is good news, friends. 
And that's why Rodney Stark in his book on the rise of Christianity wrote this, and I'm going to finish on this note. Christianity did not grow because of miracle working in the marketplaces, although they may have been much of that going on. He's writing just as a sociologist. He says, yes, there was a spiritual dimension to it. It didn't grow because Constantine said it should. That's just a complete furphy. Or even because the martyrs gave it credibility, though they did, they weren't as many in number as what we are often made out to hear, to believe. It grew because Christians constituted this intense community able to generate the invincible obstinacy and it yielded immense religious rewards. And the primary means of its growth was through the united and motivated efforts of the growing numbers of Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives and neighbours to share the good news. And you see this news, this story, it changed everything for these people. And they went out and lived lives that no one had ever seen before. And I've given you one example of that, the way they invented philanthropy, by caring for those in need. And friends, that's the message we've been given. It's the story that changes everything. And the response is very simple, repent. Repent and believe this good news.